Neurosurgeon Paul Kalanithi described himself as an ironclad atheist. He was confident there was no God and that God was irrelevant for the work that he did as a young neurosurgeon. He said he, he rejected Christianity because it failed, he said, on empirical grounds. He thought that enlightened reason offered a much more coherent cosmos. See, Dr. Kalanithi was, was arguing that he had found meaning in a material conception of reality. Ultimately, he was saying it was his scientific understanding of the world which made sense of the world, and therefore, Christianity was pointless and could be rejected. But when Paul was diagnosed with cancer at age 36, he began to wrestle with life's big questions. And he began to realize that even as a, a, a neurologist, a neurosurgeon who had had to make the diagnosis for people, that it was much different hearing it as a patient. You have terminal cancer and not much time to live. He realized his scientific view of the world couldn't answer his biggest questions. He said, science can explain love and meaning as chemical processes that take place in your brain, in your body. It, you, can, you can try and explain love and purpose in life as, as just something that, that accidentally happened so that your ancestors would survive and you'd be here. He said, but love, purpose, significance seem real to me. I don't think that they're just chemical processes. There must be something real. And if that's the case, then a material view of the world his former scientific outlook on life wasn't enough. Dr. Kalanithi concluded that scientific knowledge doesn't speak to the central aspects of human existence. He wanted to understand hope and love and beauty and honor and suffering and virtue. Dr. Kalanithi was beginning to doubt his atheism. And it was then, in his diagnosis, in his suffering, that he found hope in the gospel. In the central story of Christianity, the story of sacrifice and redemption and forgiveness. Paul Kalanithi's story of restored hope was published in a memoir posthumously. Where do you turn for answers to life's big questions? What would give your life meaning? See, but maybe, maybe you're thinking that a religious answer, an answer from a Christian preacher, an answer from the Bible, it just feels old-fashioned, best, naive, irrelevant. Or worse, maybe the Christian answer to you feels arrogant, obnoxious, selfish, to claim that Jesus is the only way. But that's exactly what, what the Christian gospel claims, that Jesus is the only way of salvation. Did you, did you hear the, the pinnacle of what Peter was saying 
in his trial before the Sanhedrin, in his trial before the religious authorities of the, of the nation in which he lived. It's there in verse 12. You can look back to it in Acts chapter 4. Peter declares a truth which is shown throughout Scripture. You've sung it already today in our hymns. You've heard it announced in our creeds. In, in verse 12, he says, Salvation is found in no one else. Wherever you go looking for salvation, you will not find it unless you turn to Christ. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. See, there's a boldness here in Peter and John. They have healed a man publicly, a man who had been crippled from the time he was born. A miraculous healing. He, he's a man who gets up, and, 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 and as, as chapter 3, you can, you can go back and read it. I mean, he is so excited. He's running and leaping and praising God. Maybe you hear the Sunday school song in your head. As he dances with joy because of what God has done for him. And Peter then, after this great miracle done by the work of God, he stands in, right there in public, out on the, the, the steps of, of the temple courts, he begins to preach boldly to those that are gathered. He tells them of the resurrection of Jesus. Look, look back with me in, in chapter 3. I didn't, I didn't read this yet. We're just kind of getting the context for what, what's taking place. Look at chapter 3, verse 13. He's speaking to those that are coming, the, the Jewish worshipers who, who come uh, as children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so in verse 13 of chapter 3, Peter preaches, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. You see what he's saying? Everything we've talked about, everything you've learned from childhood, it was about Jesus. Peter continues in his sermon, Jesus, you handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. So the story of, of Jesus' arrest was that of an innocent man, the righteous son of God. And what did the people ask for? They demanded that Jesus be crucified and that Barabbas, a convicted insurrectionist and murderer, be released. Look at verse 15 back in chapter 3. Peter is pointing the finger at those gathered before him, pointing the finger at himself. In verse 15, you killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. See, that's the central message of the Christian hope. That Jesus died in the place of sinners and that God raised him from the dead. And so Peter tells the people what they're supposed to do. Look at verse 19 of chapter 3. He says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. The times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Repent. It, it, he, he, and he defines it for them. Turn to the Lord. Repentance is, is a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an action in which you turn from the way in which you were going. You make a U-turn in life and you acknowledge, everything I had been doing was wrong. I have to come and find hope in God. And Peter promises to them the forgiveness of their sins if they put their trust in Christ. And because of this preaching, Peter and John are arrested. It's late, so there's no time to gather the Sanhedrin. There's no time for a trial to take place that evening, and so they leave them in prison overnight. We're told then that the next day they, they bring them before them. And then look at the descriptions of, of the way in which Peter's response 
takes place. They're brought before the the religious authorities. Look at verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. You see, we're we, as the readers of this historic text, are meant to recognize that these are not the mere words of a man. These are the inspired words spoken through a man by God's Holy Spirit. And of course, we, we would need to understand this. Because when Peter is left to his own devices, what does he do? He runs and hides. He promotes himself. And yet, what is he doing here? He's pointing to the hope of the gospel. And so he tells them that that it's by the name, verse 10, of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He's essentially summarizing yesterday's sermon. He's saying, you arrested me for what I said yesterday. Let's just get it on the record. Like, let's have the court stenographer write this down. I'm going to repeat what I said yesterday. Verse 10, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead. We all understand. It's written down now. That's the charge that's brought against us, that we believe that God, that that Jesus died in the place of sinners and God raised him from the dead. It's by Jesus' name that this man was healed, that he stands before you today. And that's when Peter makes that bold claim of verse 12, that salvation is found in no one else. No one else could rescue you. No one else could save you. And so the religious leaders, they were hoping a night in jail would cool them off, would let them see the foolishness of what has happened, would let them even ponder what happened the night of Jesus' arrest and betrayal. What's the outcome of a trial before the Sanhedrin for people who announced the, the resurrection of Jesus, who announced the death of Jesus? Well, they don't have to think back very far to know what happened when Jesus stood before this same group. He was condemned to death. And so perhaps they're hoping that this morning, Peter and John will come and they'll say, you know what, I think you're right. We've been a little arrogant. We've been a little loud. We're going to talk a lot less. You know what, we won't even even mention Jesus anymore. If you'll just let us go, then we'll be done with it. But Peter and John doubled down. And they know what it could cost them. And they, they say, after the, after the Sanhedrin goes out to deliberate, when they come back in and, and tell them, we, we want you to stop. Look at verse 18 of, of our chapter. And again, we didn't read this far. But in verse 18 of chapter 4, the, the leaders call them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Right? They're, they're giving them, they're making the plea arrangement for them. If you'll just shut your mouths, we'll let you go. Look at verse 19. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Peter and John's lives have been so radically transformed by the message of Christianity, by Jesus himself, that they say, Do, what, do to us what you will. We're going to listen to God's authority, and we're going to keep preaching. And their boldness is is so great that that when they're released then, because now the the religious leaders feel like they're caught in a quandary, if we punish them now when the crowds are on their side, that could go 
poorly for us, so let's, let's just send them on their way and, and hope all this mess just dissipates. But the boldness of Peter and John is such an encouragement to the rest of the church that when they go back to the other Christians, look at, look at verses 29, uh, look, look, at verse, look at verse 29 of chapter 4. They're, they're praying with the church, now Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now look at verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. You see, the boldness of Peter and John in the face of great threat is an encouragement to the whole church and the whole church is placed in the very position that Peter was in as a witness before the world to the resurrection of Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit. And so, so if you're a member of this church, if, if you profess faith in Jesus Christ, this is what should be happening to you as you hear this message. You should be filled with boldness, not, your, not an arrogance, but a humble confidence that God is at work through you. You should be the type of person that can't help but speak about this because it's so important to you. I mean, think of the way it's easy with certain people to just talk about certain things. You know that friend who's really into sports, so you chat about the scores of the night? That neighbor who's got kids the same age as your kids, so you talk about what's going on in, in school together? So we just we talk naturally about things that are important to us, that matter to us. If the gospel matters to us as believers, then we will... We will be forced to talk about it because it's central to who we are. And with boldness given to us by the Holy Spirit, we, we, will, we will share the message of the gospel. All right, so here's the challenge to you if you're a member of this church. I want you to consider someone you can invite to join you next Sunday. Through this fall, we're going to keep asking these kinds of big questions. Or, or, or maybe a Sunday morning doesn't fit their, their work schedule. Maybe, maybe they can't make it on a Sunday. Or maybe walking into a big sanctuary and, and singing together feels, feels too much like church. So invite them to come with you on Wednesday nights for Faith Explored. We're in a much less threatening environment where we sit around tables and share a meal together. I'll talk them through some of these same kind of questions. A seven-week series. You, you've got an invitation in your, in your bulletin. It's a reminder to you, and an invitation to you, if you're visiting with us, this is an invitation for you to, to join us on Wednesday night to explore life's big questions. But this should be a tool for you, as a member of this church, to go to someone and say, will you join me? We've, we've talked a little bit about this, or, or maybe, maybe you've never been bold enough to even open your mouth and talk about Jesus with this person. So just go and say, hey, these are some things that are really important to me, something that happened in my church. I'd like to take you. Would you be willing to come? Just give it a try the first week. It's a free meal. If nothing else, you get a free meal out of it. You and I can sit and talk for a little bit. Invite somebody to join you for Faith Explored. Sit with them through the course so that you can help answer their questions. Okay, but, but I understand that some of you, you're, you're, you're not members of the church. You're, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. And, and so you're still wrestling with the idea that, like, this seems like a very narrow discussion. And it seems mostly irrelevant to the way I live my life. You've got a couple of leaders of some small sect of Christians. At this point, even after, even after all of this, there's only 5,000 people following the message. 
There are only 5,000 people who would claim to be Christians. And so it's, it's this small sect within Judaism arguing with, with the larger context of first century Judaism. Seems pointless for me to try and pick a side in something so narrow, something that feels so irrelevant to me. And, and maybe worse, you're thinking, yeah, this is, this is just another example of what happens when you let religious people make decisions. Because all they're doing is yelling at each other and threatening each other and causing violence to one another. I mean, the threats are not small here in the book of Acts. And it will only be a couple of chapters before Christians start losing their lives for claiming the name of Jesus. And so you're thinking, religion, religion just causes conflict. Okay, yes. I'm willing to admit to you today that religious beliefs held for selfish reasons can lead to conflict. And that's exactly what the religious leaders are doing in verse 18. They're threatening them. They're commanding them not to speak. They're trying to, to take some authority and have control over them. Verse 21, they're, they're, they're threatening to punish them. But when we, when we consider the context, we realize this is more than just a a narrow debate between one small sect of Judaism. Because what are the questions they're wrestling with? They're the questions of life and death. That's the context of Jesus' death and resurrection. They're talking about life eternal, life everlasting. It's a question about purpose in life. What should I give myself to? What should I, what should I invest my life in? They're questions about authority. Who has the right to tell me what to do? Who is it, the religious leaders ask, that gave you this kind of power, that gave you this authority? See, they're thinking, we have the authority. If we didn't give it to you, you should shut your mouths. But don't you see that the questions they're asking are questions that matter to us? And so does your view of the world offer any meaningful answers? Can you answer these big questions? Well, the way that you've constructed the, the, your, your, your worldview to, to try and figure out how to get through life. So because these are spiritual questions, questions that ultimately force us to, to consider ultimate authority. These questions are inherently relevant. Even if you don't care what happens in Acts chapter 4, you have to be able to answer the kinds of questions that are being asked here. See, but some of you, you want to you press it further. Yes, you're willing to say these are questions we can talk about. The real problem is when somebody says, I have the answer, I'm right, and you're all wrong. And you feel like that's exactly what, what Peter is doing. I mean, look, at, look again at verse, verse 12. How many options does he leave open? Of all of the ways to live in the world, of the hundreds or thousands of worldviews possible, of the billions of people who have lived, how many ways does he say are available for salvation? Only one. See, that sounds like a big problem to us, particularly as, as modern Western people who, who want to think of ourselves, and I, and I think rightly, of being open-minded enough to listen to one another. And that's a good motivation. See, the problem here is when we, is when we begin to think that to have an answer automatically leads to arrogance. 
Yes. You can reach this conclusion and do so in a selfish, prideful way. And so if you're a Christian, you need to consider if that's the way you come off. That's the way you sound when you talk about this. Do you sound like, I'm right, you're wrong, listen to me? That's not what, what Peter and John are doing. They're wrestling with that question, by what authority do you do this? Who has the right to speak on this issue? And then, j- just think of it with me a little, bit, a little bit harder. That idea that it's arrogant to tell other people that they're wrong. Maybe that's what you're thinking. That I'm arrogant to stand up here and say Jesus is the only way. Or, or that, that all religious claims end up in arrogance. Or maybe to, to, you're, you're thinking of it in, in this way. Any claim to have the one true answer must be arrogant. Okay, but, but think about it. If that's what you're saying, what have you just said to me? It is arrogant to tell other people that they're wrong. But you're telling me I'm wrong for saying Jesus is the way of salvation. That all religious claims are arrogant, well, that would mean you're telling me my claims are arrogant. Any claim to have the one true answer must be arrogant. But don't you see the dilemma? You haven't actually pushed your argument far enough. Your argument undoes your very claim itself. Okay, there's a, there's a line in, in Shakespeare's play, Hamlet. I didn't read the whole play. All right, there's a line in Shakespeare's play, Hamlet, which, which has become kind of a proverbial saying that I'd like us to, to recover. All right, Hamlet is, is, is thinking about those that are threatening his life, and he hopes that they're going to get what's coming to them. And so, so he says that, that those that, that want him killed, they will be hoist, he will be hoist with his own petard. All right, I mean, that's so catchy. It's going to... You're all going to be saying that this week. Hoist with his own petard. A petard is a, is a small bomb, and so he will be blown up with his own bomb. You, you're trying to breach the castle, and as you take the, the small bomb up to put it on the castle door, it blows up and doesn't just take out the door, but takes you out with it. He is hoist with his own petard. I mean, I'm going to get T-shirts made. Your argument blows up on you. If you say it is arrogant to make a claim and tell other people that they're wrong, that's exactly what you are doing in that claim. Now you might think, oh good, well I've just blown away the whole argument and now we can start fresh. Except that that was your central claim. Your central claim is that it's arrogant of Christians to make a to make a claim that Jesus is the only way. And I'm not saying that's central to what, I, what, what I'm saying. Yes, it is part of the Christian gospel, but I'm willing to admit that. I don't think the gospel is destroyed when we blow up that claim of arrogance. Because it's a claim that comes to us from God with his authority, but more than that. Yes, there is a way to say it selfishly, pridefully, arrogantly, but there is a way to make this claim humbly to have a humble confidence in the one solution that is offered to us. That's what the disciples are doing. They're not standing there pounding their fists and saying, we're right and you're wrong. No, what do they do? 
Look again at verse 10. Then know this, you and all the people of Israel, even as they defend themselves, they're, they're supposed to be here on the defense, they're going on the offense. They're, they're saying, no, no, this is a message for you as well. You, the very people that are guilty of killing Jesus, the forgiveness that he offers is right here for you. Peter stood on the temple courts and announced to everyone, repent and believe. See, this is a humble confidence that, yes, there is only one way of salvation, but it should be announced to everyone. And remember who makes the claim. It's Peter and John, who have been behind locked doors, hiding for fear of their lives. Remember the last time that Peter was here near where the Sanhedrin met. Jesus had been arrested. Peter's not inside making a defense for Jesus. Peter's not standing up and saying, I'm with him, and this is why what he says is true. I've been there with him all along. I watched the miracles. No, that's not what Peter does. Those of you that are familiar with the Bible know where Peter was during the trial of Jesus, hiding in the shadows outside. And when he's recognized, what does he do? He denied Jesus. He denied any knowledge of him. Not before the Sanhedrin, who has power of life and death over him, but before a servant of the house. He says, I don't know him. I don't know Jesus at all. See, if Peter were standing in his own confidence, he'd be standing and trying to get people to trust in him. But he's been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, emboldened to stand and say, Say, I was a lost sinner who had no hope of rescue. And then Jesus died on the cross for me. A denier, a rebel, a sinner, one who turned his back on the one who had loved me. Jesus died for me. And he was emboldened by the resurrection of Christ. His life transformed because Jesus was raised from the dead. And so he comes not, not making this claim with a selfish arrogance, but with a humble confidence, saying to all of the people, there was no way of salvation for you, none at all. There was zero hope of rescue. And now there is one way to be saved. The only way you need, the only rescue, it's here through Jesus. And so the forgiveness of sins that is announced in the gospel is announced to you today. It's genuinely offered to you through Jesus. What are you asked to do? It's just what Peter told the, the crowd. Repent. Turn from your sins. Admit there was no way for you to save yourself and find hope in the one true way of Jesus. See, there's no arrogance in the claim of verse 12. There's a humility and acknowledging what God has done for us. Salvation is found in no one else. There's a humble urgency in telling others about this good news. Have you heard the news? Salvation is found in no one else except through Jesus, through the name of the Son of God, the one name given to us by which we can be saved. Jesus is the only way. He is the gracious and generous Savior who gave himself for us. Paul Kalanithi 
wrestled with the meaning of life after his terminal cancer diagnosis. His daughter was born after he'd been diagnosed. His wife Lucy feared that it would make his death even harder. But Paul said, yes, it may be harder to say goodbye, but it will be because my life has even more meaning. Baby Katie was only eight months old when her father died. But his love for her gave his life meaning. Meaning not found in a material, a merely material universe. Meaning found in the love of a father. Paul Kalanithi's hope, even in the face of death, was not in himself, not in his brilliance as a surgeon, not in his Stanford, Cambridge, or Yale diplomas on the wall, not his former scientific view of the universe. His hope was in Jesus Christ. Salvation is found in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that that those who, who are wrestling with these questions would not be given a comfort or a peace until they find it in Jesus. Lord, that the discomfort that we, we feel today in, in wrestling through the, the big questions of life, the dissatisfaction we have with the answers that we've searched for, Lord, let that dissatisfaction push us toward Jesus. Lord, grant faith now to those who are here, Lord, give us as believers, as Christians, as followers of Christ, give us a boldness to share this good news with others. Let us be willing this week to invite a friend, to start a conversation, to announce the hope of Jesus Christ. For we rejoice in the good news that there is a way of salvation made possible through Jesus' death, declared with victory and power through his resurrection. Lord, we come rejoicing in the name of Jesus, the name given to us by which we may be saved. Amen.